This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. People are out and about. They're riding motorcycles, skateboards, doing a lot of outdoor activities, which is great. But unfortunately, we have accidents sometimes. So we're going to talk with Dr. Christopher Shank today, who's a neurosurgeon and neurotrauma program medical director at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth about the importance of being safe, especially wearing helmets when we're doing these activities. Dr. Shank, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Dr. Shank, tell us about your trauma center and what type of accident trauma do you see? Um, You know, we're the largest trauma center in the area, the busiest trauma center in the area. We see trauma from car accidents, bicycles, scooters, and unfortunately, motorcycle accidents are sort of the worst of all worlds because the vehicle itself provides really no protection to the rider, and that plus the high rate of speed Uh, equals some pretty significant injuries a lot of times. So uh, I've seen way too many. Sometimes many of those crashes, unfortunately, turn into fatalities. How do you think Texas stands in regards to motorcycle deaths? And can you explain to our listeners how important it is to wear a helmet to reduce death and injury? Yeah, so um, like in many things, Texas is a go big or go home state, and motorcycle injuries is unfortunately no exception to that rule. Uh, We have somewhere between 300 and 500,000 motorcyclists in the state, depending on what source you look at, somewhere between four and 500 fatalities a year, uh, which is one of the highest in the country. And even if you control for the number of motorcyclists, we still have one of the highest fatality rates uh, per person in the country. Helmets and other protective gear uh, can be very helpful in an accident. Uh, Helmets obviously provide uh, protection against more minor blows to the head, and they can provide an extra crumple zone for more significant blows. That's really just one part of the protective outfit. You need to be wearing uh, protective uh, gloves and protective gear uh, over your body as well to protect against systemic injuries. You know, you mentioned over four to 500 people die annually in Texas from motorcycle accidents, and that is just unbelievable. In addition to the head injuries that we're focused on, what other types of injuries do you see resulting from motorcycle accidents. Yeah, so we're seeing it just in the state of Texas, we're seeing one to two fatalities per day and between five and six severe injuries per day just from motorcycle accidents, which is very significant. Head and brain trauma are probably the two most common injuries and unfortunately are are two of the more deadly ones. Uh, But we also see a significant number of Uh, spinal column and spinal cord injuries, which can themselves be fatal or devastating. And then we see a significant amount of systemic injuries, uh, typically involving the extremities like arm, hand, uh, or leg fractures. 
We've mentioned at the outset about neurotrauma. Can you explain that term? And in addition to that, kind of talk a little bit from mild injuries through the most serious injuries. So I basically break down neurotrauma into two broad categories, brain trauma and spine trauma. Brain trauma can be anything from something like a mild concussion that you might sustain like in a sports accident or a very minor uh, motor vehicle accident to actual traumatic brain injury, which itself can be subdivided into mild, moderate, or severe. And that's really based on how much the patient is interacting with us when they reach the hospital. Are they opening their eyes? Are they talking? And if so, is that appropriate? Um, and then how are they responding to us with their arms and legs? Are they following commands? Are they exhibiting pathological motion? Uh, spine injury is uh, similarly broken down into mild, moderate, and severe based on how significant their motor impairment is. We're talking with Dr. Christopher Shank, a neurosurgeon at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth about protecting our heads this summer. You know, you mentioned some of the things that you look for. For people that have had a severe uh, blow to the head, what are some symptoms that should immediately tell them they need to seek immediate emergency care? Well, I think that a lot of the symptoms are unfortunately nonspecific. Everybody's had a headache. Everybody's had a little bit of nausea and vomiting. Um, but when those symptoms are persistent and refractory despite uh, just routine over-the-counter medications, so severe headache, severe nausea, vomiting, new onset double vision uh, or blurry vision, new onset weakness involving the arms or legs, those are potentially significant findings that should prompt someone to seek uh, medical attention. You know, in your practice and, and, and the people that you treat, I'm going to pivot a little bit from motorcycles to bikes and bicycles and skateboards. What are your recommendations related to safety when you're participating in those types of activities? Yeah, I think just like with motorcycles, I think that people, when they're participating in those activities, be that riding a bicycle or a skateboard or rollerblades or scooter or, uh, or a full motorbike, I think you need to wear a full protective uh, garment that includes helmet and protective body equipment as well. You know, we've talked about sustaining the injury. Can you help our listeners understand once they incur an injury, and I know you have to assess it, what are some of the treatment options? Well, the mainstay of the initial treatment is getting a detailed history and physical. So talking to the patient about what happened in this incident, as well as their past medical and past surgical history, what medications they take, their allergies and then performing a very detailed neurological exam to determine what, if any, injuries they might have sustained. And as we know, these neurological injuries evolve over time, so it's very important that we perform that exam over and over and over again to watch for worsening of the injury or new injury, which may occur after the fact. Sometimes that involves uh, very close monitoring in the neurointensive care unit. 
Uh, for some unfortunate patients, that involves more invasive procedures like placing monitors in the head to follow intracranial pressure. And for a small subset, it unfortunately involves taking them to the operating room for some type of emergency surgical intervention. This is Dr. Christopher Shank. He's a neurosurgeon at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth, where he's doing some cutting-edge work and research on trauma to the head. And so the mass and the velocity of the larger vehicle actually determines the severity of the injury. And that simply means if you get hit by a car, the car's going to win. What we can do to stay safe next on the human side of healthcare. Also catch this interview in its entirety on our podcast and our YouTube channel under the same name. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. Boy, I'll tell you, if you've ever had a head injury, you know how important this segment is. We're talking with Dr. Christopher Shank, neurosurgeon and neurotrauma program medical director at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. Particularly, we're talking about the safety element of wearing a helmet in the summer if we're on a motorcycle, bicycle, skateboard, etc. Steve? You know, Dr. Shank, there are many helmets out there. What do you recommend as the best helmet for protection? I think a lot of helmets provide similar protection. I don't know that you need to break the bank to buy protective equipment, but I do think that the protective equipment that you buy needs to fit the person that it is applied to, meaning don't let your child continue to wear a helmet that's too small. And more importantly, don't buy a helmet that's way too large for the child because that really uh, limits its efficacy in preventing neurologic injury. It needs to be well-fitting. Let's assume parents are at a football game where their, their kids are playing football or their kids are riding a skateboard and maybe even their bike, and they fall and hit their head and lose consciousness for even a minute or two minutes, should they then immediately go to an emergency room? Well, I think it's important to have that person evaluated by a medical professional if they have any concerning signs. So if it's at a sporting event where there is a dedicated medical professional at the event to perform a detailed exam, then I don't know that that patient necessarily has to go to a healthcare facility. But if, if it's an instance where there isn't a medical professional and there's a significant loss of consciousness like you described, then I think it would be appropriate to have that patient evaluated by a healthcare professional. As you look in your crystal ball, do you see new treatments or innovative ways that neurotrauma care can be administered? So the guidelines for the management of traumatic head injury and traumatic brain injury have entered a, a phase that they've started to call living guidelines, meaning that those of us who are experts in the field who manage these patients on a day-to-day -day basis um, are actively participating in research to try and determine various ways or improved ways of managing these patients after the injury. And that is an ongoing iterative process uh, that will hopefully over time result in persistent and improved care. Well, Dr. Shank, you've done a great job answering my questions. And 
Thomas and I were chatting before we began the interview, and what I just described happened to him on a bike when he was a child. Thomas, I'm going to let's see if you have questions. Well, it did actually happen. I was nine years old. I just been given a new bicycle for Christmas with a front brake on it, and I didn't know how to use it. And I grabbed that brake going down a slight hill, stopped the wheel, spun over the handlebars right into a curb. I was out for probably 10 minutes or so. So, you know, I don't have a context in my life of what would life be without that accident in it, right? It's always been there. But I've always wondered if that was something that I carried into my adult years. I don't know that there is a definitive answer for that. I think that any any significant injury can potentially uh, create ramifications down the line. But what I think is more important is preventing successive or repeated injuries. So, you know, everyone is allowed one, so to speak. But what we want to avoid is, for example, doing that multiple times back to back or the football player that gets repeated concussions over and over and over again at a very early age. We know that that successive repetitive injury does cause uh, significant neural impairment down the line. Yeah, great answer. And fortunately, I have shored that up and haven't had that experience since. So I'm curious from your perspective as a physician in a large trauma facility, the difference that you see between people who come in having had a motorcycle accident versus a bicycle accident. So when you fly off of either of those vehicles, how do you kind of distinguish the types of injuries you're going to see from the motorcycle wreck versus the bike wreck? A lot of times they're actually fairly similar because the vast majority of injuries that involve motorcycles and involve bicycles are that entity versus a larger vehicle. And so the mass and the velocity of the larger vehicle actually determines the severity of the injury. If you compare solo motorcycle versus solo bike, the motorcycle rider is going to have typically worse injuries because of the higher rate of speed. But if you're on either one of those and you're struck by an 18-wheeler, you're going to have some pretty, potentially have some pretty significant injuries. So is it, it's easier to die on a motorcycle? Absolutely. And then when somebody falls off of a bike, like they're on the White Rock Trail or something like that, what kind of things do you see? We see a lot of the same things. Uh, unfortunately, people still ride their bike without a bicycle helmet, so we still see some pretty significant head injuries. That can include lacerations to the head and neck, skull fractures, contusions to the brain, uh, blood clots on or in the brain, neck fractures, uh, and then systemic injuries, including hand or wrist fractures, arm fractures, leg or ankle fractures. This again is Dr. Christopher Shank on the human side of healthcare, a neurosurgeon and medical director of neurotrauma at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. So what's your first line of treatment for those kinds of head injuries? The first line of treatment is always go see and talk to the patient, get the story, get a detailed exam, and then perform serial neurologic exams to monitor their progression over time. Fortunately, most people don't have a worsening of their injury after the fact, but somewhere in the 10 to 20% of people will, even in the best of hospitals, they'll have a worsening of their injury. So it's very important to catch that early on and intervene quickly if, if they fall into that category. And I guess the most threatening thing would be inflammation of the brain. 
Correct. And, that, and that's really what we're looking for is, is inflammation or swelling of the brain. And we want to we want to act early and prevent that negative downward spiral that that can start. Yeah, that's when it's bad, right? That's a bad deal. Correct. Yeah. For our teenagers, people in their 20s or parents thereof, we see a lot of skateboards out there these days. Do you see skateboard injuries? Is that mostly fractures? We do, and it is. And I remember a few years ago when those hoverboards came out, the two-wheeled hoverboards, we saw a significant number of pediatric injuries uh, related to those as well. Fortunately, because those are typically low-speed, low-velocity accidents, those injuries are, are generally milder, but not always, unfortunately. I know we're not talking about sports here in particular, but I've heard some neurologists as you were talking about just a minute ago, protecting the head after that first injury. And you could take this to football, or I've heard some say, don't bounce a soccer ball off of your kid's head until such an age that it's more developed. How far do you take it? Well, I think when the rubber hits the road, that's going to be a you know family-level decision. Um, there are a lot of positives to being in team sport activities, team building, making friends, that sort of thing. Those are crucial to the social and neural development of children. But you do have to balance that with the potentially very negative ramifications of a significant head injury. So I think that, you know, when the child is in middle school and younger, uh, you have to pay particularly close attention to those activities like tackle football or even soccer Uh, that can have a negative impact from that. Really is something, that's a great point, that families should sit down and calculate the risk. Absolutely. Great point. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You know, for our listeners that maybe are just really learning about some of the specifics of neurotrauma care, what is a key message you would like to leave with them? Everything that we do here at the hospital is reactionary, meaning the cat's out of the bag, the horse is out of the barn. The insult to either the brain or the spinal cord has already happened. And as good as we are at at treating these things, everything we do is behind the eight ball. The most important thing that people can do, and whether that's driving a car, riding on a motorcycle, riding a bike, Uh, riding a scooter, the most important thing we can do is be proactive rather than having the medical teams need to be reactive. So wear your protective clothing, obey traffic laws, don't drive under the influence. It sounds like common sense things, but it is extremely important in preventing the primary injury. This has been Dr. Christopher Shank from Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. Not only is he on the cutting edge of new research around neurotrauma, but just some excellent information and safety tips we hope you'll heed. If you didn't hear some of the interview, it's on our podcast and our YouTube channel, both under the human side of healthcare. Now, do you remember Texas thunderstorms? We used to have those before they got baked out of existence. Well, they'll be back. And you know, hiding under a tree is about the worst thing you could do. It either goes into the ground around you, uh, what they call a ground current strike, or it could come down the tree and angle off and use you as part of the pathway to the ground. Chris Noah from Parkland Health and Hospital System on lightning safety in North Texas, next on the Human Side of Healthcare. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. Boy, is it hot today, and it's been hot. You probably have forgotten what a good old-fashioned Texas thunderstorm is like, but we want to give you some tips so that when they do return, you'll be prepared, because electricity and lightning can be fatal. We're going to be talking with Chris Noah, who's the Director of Disaster Management at Parkland Health and Hospital System today about safety around electricity. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Chris, even before we begin talking about lightning, when you think in terms of electrical components, what are your basic safety precautions when dealing with electricity? Well, anytime I deal with electricity, I have a little respect for it. Something that we can't see, something that we typically don't hear, uh, but it is something that we absolutely can feel. And uh, being that it's sometimes invisible, we always have to take precautions when we're around it to make sure that we don't become injured or even be killed by it. You know, unfortunately, sometimes people get electrocuted. How in your mind do you prevent electrocution? Well, you know, one of the best ways to do that is, you know, if you're working around the house or on the job is to basically turn off the electricity to the area that you're working on and let those people around you know that you've turned the electricity off uh, when you're around uh, so they don't go behind you and accidentally turn it back on while and re-energize those lines while you're working on it. In industry, they a lot of times call that lockout tag out, where they physically put a lock on it and a tag that says, don't turn this on, there are workers present. But in your home, you don't always have that capability. So making sure everybody knows that you're working on electricity. The other thing is, is, you know, especially with storms, you might see some electrical lines or lines that have come off of a pole or a pole is down. Uh, we don't know if those lines have electricity in them or not. So it's always best to, to stay away from those lines and report them so that the experts can come out and find out if those lines are electrical or if they're telephone, if they're energized or they're not. Because uh, one small accidental mistake could cost you your life. You know, if you're a co-worker, a family member, a friend, and you're in close proximity to someone that you think has been electrocuted, what are your recommendations? Well, first thing is kind of do a quick assessment. Did they get electrocuted and then the voltage stopped and they're no longer being electrocuted? Then you can give them aid. If they're actively energized along with that line or the power source, if you were to touch them and they're fully energized, you too may become electrocuted. And obviously want to get them help. A, a small shock may make them completely unconscious or have their heart stopped. Uh, so depending on what that person's condition is, you may need to call 911. You might have to start CPR. The person's likely visibly going to see uh, burns on them. Uh, they may also, depending on if it was a higher voltage, their clothes may be on fire or they may have been blown off of them by the energy of the electricity going through them. But the bottom line is, is, we have to be careful 
comfortable with ourselves so that we can help someone else that's in danger. So we've got to do a little quick risk assessment and say, hey, um, do we think we're okay to, to approach this person or do I need to get somebody that knows a little bit more about this to, to make those decisions? You know, during the summer, as you well know, in Texas, we have summer storms. But if it's getting close to your home, what should you do in your mind? Well, there's a saying that goes out there. Um, One of them is flash, dash inside. Basically, you want to take shelter in a sturdy building as lightning approaches. Lightning can travel up to 20-something miles away from the storm that produces it. So waiting till the last minute um, really is putting you at more risk for uh, a lightning strike. The best thing you can do is get into a sturdy building, if that's a house or a industrial building, or even if it's 7-Eleven or QT or another one of the convenience stores that are out there. If we've got a lot of lightning in the area, the thing you don't want to do is to be outdoors. You know, that brings up a good point. A lot of people are fascinated with the lightning and with storms. If you get inside of a shelter, is it okay to sit in your garage on your back porch? Or is that still not exactly what you're talking about? Yeah, we're not really talking about just having something to where the rain doesn't hit you. Or when you talk about a garage or a awning in your you know, off your backyard, you know, that kind of plays the role as like a tree. Uh, lightning can still get to you either from what they call a side flash or a uh, side splash. Uh, the other thing is if you're under a metal awning and lightning hits that awning, it's possible that lightning may travel to you and into the ground. So you can still get electrocuted uh, in those two locations. We want something that surrounds us completely. Basically, we want to become invisible to the lightning. We're talking with Chris Noah from Parkland Health and Hospital System about lightning safety here on the human side of healthcare. Thanks for joining us. You know, I grew up in a rural area, so if you were outside and a storm came up quickly, would you recommend getting under a tree or would you say lay as flat as you could so that you don't attract lightning? Well, there's two things about lightning that, you know, we don't, we want to become invisible to lightning. So if we are under a tree, that tree is still taller than we are, and it might attract a lightning strike that either goes into the ground around you, uh, what they call a ground current strike, or it could come down the tree and angle off and use you as part of the pathway to the ground. So trees are not a good option. You know, the weather service recommends that we not lay on the ground, that we crouch down. And crouching creates less of a surface area on the ground should the ground become electrocuted uh, from a lightning strike. And that can travel about 20 meters or uh, about 60 feet away from where it hit the ground. So the idea being if you're laying flat on the ground, your body is going to receive more of that current from the lightning strike if it's nearby. If you're crouching, uh, it would only be your feet that would uh, be in contact with the ground and, and much less likely to receive a harmful um, 
strike from a little bit of distance. So a lot of times they talk about crouching. The best thing that you can actually do is to get into a car that has a metal roof on it or get into a sturdy building. Uh, cars do provide some resistance to lighting, lightning, but the best thing is just get out of the outdoors and get into a sturdy building if you can. Obviously, in a rural area, that may not make a lot of sense, especially if you're out working in a field or uh, if you're down at the, the lake or the creek and um, there's not really a building around. Uh, but basically, try to plan ahead and, and take shelter so that you don't have to make a decision whether to crouch down or uh, try to take other protective actions. You know, while we're on the subject of rural areas, my grandparents had a home out in rural Virginia, and they actually had lightning rods that were around their house. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that. You probably don't see them in the city that much, but did they really work? So they do. What, what you don't see if you're just driving by is that rod on top of the house is typically connected to a metal cable or a metal wire that actually directs that electrical strike down the rod, down the wire into the ground so that it doesn't come into your house or penetrate your house. That's what they're really there for. They're to make your house invisible to that electricity by rerouting it around it. Um, the other thing that you'll see sometimes on industrial buildings here in the Metroplex is you'll see some lightning rods on there, and they do exactly the same thing. They have a, a conductor or a wire or cable, and then it's hooked all the way down to the ground. Uh, here at Parkland, we have them on top of our hospital at 18 stories up, and there are lines that run all 18 stories all the way down to the earth to try to protect the hospital from uh, electrical shock from lightning. You know, if you're uh, living in an area, rural or city, and lightning is striking frequently around you, I know you said try to get inside into the building. What other precautions do you recommend? You know, you want to try to find a low spot if you can. If you can't retreat into a building, try to find a low spot. Don't be the highest point. Don't be on the hill. The other thing, too, is... And I know people kind of giggle about this, and I, I kind of giggle sometimes too, but lightning can strike the same spot over and over. Uh, it's looking for a way to discharge itself. So anytime that we cannot make ourselves a target or, again, try to become more invisible um, to that, that's what we want to do. So don't be on hills. Um, obviously if you're working around metal ladders, uh, get away from that. If you're in a group, it's even recommended that y'all disperse throughout the area. So if there is a lightning strike, it doesn't get the whole group. It only gets a few people and the rest of the group can try to help out. Just a couple of opportunities people have too, to learn more about, uh, lightning weather.gov is a website for the weather service. They have white lightning safety tips. There's a lot of opportunity to learn what best practices could be for you. I've been out camping and, you know, basically a thunderstorm rolls up. There's not a lot of shelter to uh, try to take. So, you know, knowing what is brings your risk down is truly what you want to find out and research and, and learn about so that you don't have to accidentally become the lightning rod that, you know, people hear about and, and make, make the noise. 
This is Chris Noah, the Director of Disaster Management at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Obviously, we're talking about lightning safety. Oh, it will be back one day. This interview and the previous interview with Dr. Shank are both on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, and our YouTube channel under the same name. Back with more lightning safety tips next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. We're continuing our conversation about lightning safety when thunderstorms finally do return to North Texas. This is Chris Noah, the Director of Disaster Management, Parkland Health and Hospital System. We're continuing our thought from the last segment about some of the various areas where we might encounter a potential lightning threat. Uh, Another couple of things that we tend to see here in Texas is people out at football games or baseball games or kids sports. We want to, you know, try to early make a decision on whether or not we need to take shelter from the lightning. We want to make sure that we've communicated with those around us about what we're going to do, where we're going to go. There might be a bricked in bathroom area that might be safer than being out in the open, but like a kid's dugout um, for a baseball team, that is not a safe area. Um, it's not the safest area, but there, it might provide some protection, but it's, it's not eliminating the risk. So, you know, being on the beach, if you go, go on vacation and you go to the beach or the lake, there's lots of different scenarios that we can put you in outside. But the key is, is, Plan ahead, have a plan, practice the plan if you can, or talk it over. And then when the hazard occurs, recognize it and react to it. Um, And some people say, well, that's a lot to do. Well, it comes naturally if you just practice it a few times and you think about it. If there's lightning, go indoors. And that's the best thing that you can do. If you're out in the field, you know, try to be invisible as you can to that lightning. The other recommendation is, is once you feel like the rumble and the lightning have passed, to wait 30 minutes before you go back outside because lightning can travel again, uh, 20 something miles. And it'd be tragic if uh, we ended up losing some folks or had serious injuries simply because they thought it was over with and they get uh, a lightning strike. Chris, I'm always observant of our culture and different ways that people are living more on the edge these days. And one of those areas that has become almost sport now are storm chasers. I don't get it. Do these people not have jobs? But they will travel so many miles to go hunt down a tornado. When you see that and you see these people out there intentionally driving into danger, Did anything come to mind from your perspective of what you get paid to do every day? Well, there's two things. One is if if they're trained storm spotter, I know that they have some training to evaluate the risk of what they're doing and their position relative to the storm. And um, I know that they are upping their risk of injury, either from a lightning strike, tornadoes, large hell. Um, And some of these folks are in their personal vehicles. Um, you know, they may take a financial hit or the vehicle itself may be damaged. Not only that, they could be hurt. Uh, those people that go out and do it for fun and entertainment, it really kind of um, scares me a little bit because they typically become a patient for us at some point in their life by their, their risky behavior. Um, I love lightning. I think it's beautiful, but I also respect it. 
and I know that it can get me and I know it can get my family. So I want to make sure that I try to, to keep people safe as possible and keep them away, keep them inside, keep them away from that um, lightning and thunderstorm because it's not a problem until it happens. And that's where people uh, forget that we have the ability to try to keep it from happening to begin with. But the storm chasers, they provide a great service to the National Weather Service and to the public. But again, if they're not trained, it's more of a high risk uh, thrill than it is a service. Kind of a wives tale thing here. You're sitting in your car, your car gets hit by lightning. At what point would you be in danger? If you're touching something metal, that's one of the ones that's like, well, now you can't find metal on the inside of a car, I don't think. So it's like, how would you get hit if you were inside? Yeah, typically uh, a vehicle with a metal roof typically will protect you from lightning. But again, you know, if you're touching a piece of metal that directly contacts the outside metal of the car, it could be possible that you could receive a jolt from that. If you're in your car driving down the road, it's highly unlikely you're going to be touching anything metal, like you said, in these days. Um, but we really, if, if we're using our car as shelter and setting still, we just want to sit in there with our hands on our lap and just relax the best we can and wait till that storm passes. Let's bring this home into the safety of our own roof. And what things should we be considering in our homes to protect our kids? So, you know, we want to teach our kids, um, you know, about lightning and about the respect for that lightning and also tornadoes. Where do we go shelter? What should we stay away from? One of the things that like the, uh, the Weather Service, National Weather Service recommends is that you do not take a shower or bath or use your plumbing during a lightning storm. Uh, if a lightning jolt was a bolt was to hit your house, it could energize through your plumbing system if it's metal. A lot of the new plumbing systems are plastic, so there's not that big of a risk other than it traveling through the water itself. So, you know, it's kind of one of those things of uh, if I don't know, let's be safe. Let's postpone, you know, bath time. Let's, um, you know, stay away from doing the dishes until the storm pass. And for the kids, you know, a lot of times they may go up to the glass storm door or the window and want to look out and see what's going on. We really don't want them to be close to those windows. The only reason is, is if they get blown out for either a wind or hail storm, or if lightning hit close by, it could shatter that window. And we don't want those kids to get cut or get glass in their eyes or be really be hurt in any way that they can. Um, one thing that, that I still find in this day and time um, that some of us will probably have a little laugh about is we used to tell people to stay away from corded phones. A what? So a corded <laughs> phone. Yeah, like a home phone. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So uh, for those that still have a corded phone, you know, that's something else to think about is that wire travels outside of your home uh, to a pole outside or underground. And if lightning would strike it, it is possible for that lightning bolt to travel through. Uh, the other thing is, is if for some reason your home is struck by lightning and it catches on fire, You'll need to make sure those kids know your fire 
evacuation plan and where to meet, how to call for help if they're of age to be able to call for help or what neighbor to go to for assistance if, you know, those kids are at home maybe by themselves um, to get more help. But really, when we come to, to lightning and thunderstorms, we always have to think of the multi-hazard, everything, tornadoes, hell, lightning, high winds, and that lightning is very hot when it does hit and it can cause fires. So we have to be ready for that side too. And I know that may sound really scary. That's not what it's meant to be. It's just meant to be aware of our hazards. It's like having a flat tire. We all know we can have a flat tire on our car. None of us want it, but when we have it, what do we do? And that's the key is having a plan, planning ahead and practicing your plan before the event happens. You bring up a really good point. So lightning hits your house. It hits the roof or the chimney or someplace or tree outside. How does the house then catch on fire? A lot of times it's straight from the heat of the lightning bolt itself. Um, They estimate that lightning bolt can be up to 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it might be just for an instantaneous uh, strike, but that is very, very, very hot. And they actually claim that that can be hotter than the surface of the sun. Um, So your shingles, your other wood that is traveling through, other structures that it hits, it could set those afire and spread. So we want to make sure that we know what to do for a fire should one occur from lightning. And we tend to see within the media that there are house fires or other fires caused by lightning, forest fires that are caused by lightning. And it's all because of that heat of that lightning bolt has uh, started something on fire. Same question. At home, pets, and I would even say there are so many places around the Metroplex now that are acreages and they have large animals, horses, maybe cows, etc. What about for our furry friends? We know the same principles apply. We want to try to get those folks into a steady shelter. Obviously, if you have livestock, that might not be an option. Um, The uh, other thing we have to weigh is life over, you know, finances. If you're a person who depends on livestock for money, we may want to stay indoors and, and take the risk of financial loss should our livestock be injured versus me as a human going out there and being injured. This has been Chris Noah from Parkland Health and Hospital System. Great tips on lightning safety. Steve? Thanks, Thomas. What a great show. All our listeners, please join us again next week for the human side of healthcare.